Sometimes the formatting in a uh, PowerPoint slide doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Be prepared for pain and suffering. That's just the title, so uh, I think we're okay. <laughs> All right. Um, not sure what happened there. So uh, I certainly look forward to uh, some rest today, after worshiping today. Um, as we all do, enjoy uh, the dual purpose of, of the Lord's Day, of, of worship, followed by some rest. Um, so today we're going to be continuing our series on never leaving the basics. Uh, we're not talking about beasts or numbers or um, all the things we've been going through in Revelation, ultimately pointing to Christ, giving us that hope. Um, never leave the basics, be prepared for pain and suffering. There's a little bit of a smiley face in there, just to uh, give us some Christian gospel hope in there. I know that this is certainly a, a compassionate um, message today. Let me start us off with a small word of prayer. Spirit, I thank you that you are our primary teacher for each and every one of us. Um, as we open up your word collectively today, as the word is delivered today, but also, Holy Spirit, as, as you are our primary teacher throughout the week as we meditate on your word, whether it is open in front of us or it's hidden in our hearts or recalling the word that was preached collectively each Lord's Day, I pray today you would continue to draw us closer to you um, in our journey of faith. In your name we pray, amen. So I want you to note that the title of this series is not just this particular year, as I'm preaching through uh, occasionally, is not just the basics of the faith, but it's don't leave the basics of the faith. There's a difference. I'm not talking to you as if this is the first time you've heard these things. Uh, these are things that you never leave. If you've been watching the Olympics and the, the great athletes, they all have a, a coach, and that coach's job is to make sure they never leave the basics. Some of them have, uh, have multiple coaches. Some of them just have one-on-one -on -one coaching. Uh, in soccer, there's a basic that you never leave, and I've seen so many teams, teams that I've been on, lose because they've lost this basic in soccer. And it isn't ball handling skills, it's simply being conditioned. It's simply being in shape. I have seen so many teams lose because the last five minutes of the game, they just can't run anymore. It's a basic. You just have to be in shape. That doesn't matter what your skill set is. You just can't leave that basic. Um, in golf... There are some basics. This is a driver, right? Um, and there are some basics you don't leave. Now, Gary, don't take these as golf lessons. This is just a sermon illustration or anybody else that golfs, okay? Uh, there are some basics that you've got to put your, your feet in the right place. The ball's got to be lined up over here. The way you hold your hands. There are whole videos on YouTube and just how you hold your hands, right? Because as you go on, you start to just be sloppy with it, don't you? You put it right there. You've got to keep your head down. You lift it up. It's all right. You keep your head down. I'm not looking up, right? Okay? You keep your head down, and you go. And when you're done, your head's really supposed to be there. When you're done, your belt buckle and your chest are supposed to be facing the ball, okay? There's no accidents. We're okay. <laughs> this is a, a basic. In, in every sport or in every hobby, if you will, there are some basics that we do not leave. And so today's foundational basic that we're going to be going over, that to never forget, is to make sure that your interpretation of the world 
not only includes Genesis 1 and 2, but also includes Genesis 3. So if you'll turn in to Genesis 3 today, we're just going to read verses uh, 14 through 19. And we're kind of dropping in on a scolding. Now in your house, if there's an argument going on, if someone's getting in trouble and you're not involved, where do you normally go? Like you run away, right? If someone's getting chewed out by a parent or a sibling or even mom and dad are having a, 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 a strong argument, right? Strong discussion. You're like, all right, I'm out of here, right? Um, I remember in, uh, in seminary, my seminary president said that, uh, Danny Aiken, he said that one time he, he came home and he, his wife was having a bad day. It's pretty human, right? You're allowed to have a bad day. And he recognized it. So he gathered his three boys together. He only had three boys. He gathered them together and he said, boys... Mom's having a bad day. Here's my advice to you. Every man for himself. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. It was just like, wow. Uh, the reality of family. So we're dropping in a scolding here. We're just reading God rebuking his people. Um, just Adam and Eve uh, especially, but of course Satan's also involved here as well. And so this is known as the curse Follow along as I read Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19. First the Lord said to the serpent, that is Satan, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for or against your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There is a scolding here, but often we look at Genesis 3.15 as the first place of the gospel being proclaimed. It's really the second place. Um, the first place being Genesis 1, 1 through 3, where God... Uh, as light shine out of darkness. This isn't just a creation story. It's a story about my soul. Uh, Paul reminds us of that in Corinthians. The light of the gospel has shone in our hearts through Christ. But here in Genesis 3.15, we do have some hope that ultimately uh, Satan will crush the head. Sorry, Jesus will crush the head of Satan. But today's title is Never Leave the Basics. Be Prepared for Pain and Suffering. How can being prepared for pain and suffering be a basic? of the faith. Well, because if you don't have a biblical preparedness for suffering, then when the tests and trials come in life, you may be found to have had the gospel seed sowed either on the path where the birds have eaten it, and the rocky ground where there is no soil, and the weeds where it's choked out, like our great ivy hill out there. We've had to work hard at, at weeding that. Or if you're prepared, you have roots Roots that never leave the basics of the gospel. And you preach it to yourself every day, and you have others preach it to you. 
You are prepared and you expect pain and suffering and you know why it's there and what to do with it. That's somebody worthy of following. Of course, ultimately we follow Christ. But if you know why the pain and suffering is here and what to do with it, then you're able to stand and remain steadfast in the Lord. It's important to know the full gospel. This is what Jesus explained in Matthew 13 with the parable of the seeds. That you don't just repent one time, like those on the rocky soil, but it's a lifetime of repentance. That involves also trial and suffering. It's not just about taking up your cross, but it's about taking up your cross daily. Yes, we have salvation, free salvation, but it's not fully realized until we're in heaven. And so there's pain and suffering, there are trials, there is repentance from our own sins, there's hurt from other people's sins while we're here on this earth. A song by, sung by Natalie Grant, written by somebody else called Held, has this great line in it that says, Who told us we'd be rescued? What has changed? Why should we be saved from nightmares? We're trying to answer that question today of why do we have nightmares? What does she mean here by saying we're not rescued? Well, our rescue comes ultimately in heaven. Being a Christian <clears throat> does not mean that we have an easier life. Though there are clearly blessings associated with obedience and faithfulness, there is real pain and suffering. And we can see that even though Joseph was obedient and faithful in Genesis, he was still exposed to a lot of suffering and pain as he was betrayed by his brothers, as he was falsely accused of sexual misconduct and even rape and then put in jail for it. can't imagine a worse thing than someone going through the things that Joseph has gone through. So there are hard things that we are, have to endure. But again, why is suffering a basic of the faith? Well, there are two whole books in the Bible that deal with suffering. If we were to uh, think about the theme of Ecclesiastes, we could say that it talks about our daily sufferings. And we went through that book for a year. But more than our daily sufferings, that more than daily carrying up our cross, Job reminds us that there are seasons also of suffering. There are specific trials that come on each of our lives. Sometimes people know these trials. Sometimes people don't know these trials. As in that we don't know about other people's trials. Certainly, hopefully, you're sharing those trials with other people. That you would allow the body of Christ to be praying for you. And at least in a small group of number of people. I found a verse yesterday <clears throat> in the book of James that talked about Job. It says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so this is a basic of the faith, being prepared for pain and suffering. There's two whole books of the Bible that deal with it. There it goes. Here's our main point for the day, and we're just going to camp out here. Today we're going to say that pain and suffering, while needing to be acknowledged in Christ, never as bad as it could be. Now this would be a very truthful 
though not totally compassionate statement if the parenthetical remark wasn't there. Too often people will say it's not as bad as it could be. Yeah, that's very true. There's a lot to be said about acknowledging pain and suffering with other people. And in particular, to have it acknowledged in Christ. Before we get into explaining what all this means based on the scriptures, I recently asked a young student, you know, I work with a lot of students, and I asked a young student their view of pain and suffering, and I, I couldn't believe what this person said just automatically, as if it was Job, you know, Job saying what it was Job's first words out of his mouth. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Would that not be our automatic response? May it be so. This student said two things about pain and suffering. They said, well, we deserve worse. We deserve hell, ultimately. This student must have gone through some sort of suffering early on in life to be able to say something like this. And then second, it enables us to have compassion on the pain and suffering of others. We could just stop right there. But let's add to this and understand that our pain is never, let's explain and explore what this means. Our pain is never as bad as it could be, first of all. Then we'll go to pain and suffering, and then we'll look at the parenthetical remark. First, it's not as bad as it could be. In Genesis 7 or so, we have the flood, 6 and 7. What did God do there? He limited, one of the effects of of God um, not enduring man's evil and sinning against him was that he limited our judgment. He limited our suffering. So that you can speak generally to say man went on average from, from 800 years to 80 years on average, okay? God limited the suffering that's on earth. We see this principle of God limiting our suffering because God is good throughout the scriptures. We see it in Exodus 5 through 7. As the people are called to make bricks and to make bricks by providing their own materials. It's one thing to do construction, to go find your own. I mean, half the work in in building something and fixing something is having the right what? The right tools, right? You spend half your time looking for the tool that you can't find or finding the right material. They had to go make their own bricks. They were first excited about Moses coming, but now they had to make their own bricks by providing their own material. They're not too happy about it. They complain to Moses. Moses goes and prays, kind of complains to the Lord. Hey, you brought me here. I mean, God's going to, he's acknowledging their suffering. He's seen it for 400 years. He brought Moses. He caused Moses to be born 80 years prior. He's got a plan over the course of approximately the next year with the 10 plagues, really 11, with Pharaoh's army drowning in the sea. And throughout that, we see God limiting the suffering of his people. There is no more mention of making bricks anymore after the beginning. Because after the first or second plague, what are the Egyptians concerned with? Concerned with all these plagues that are going on. Increasingly, Pharaoh's heart is hard, but the people's heart are like, Pharaoh, let them go. (laughs) His counselors are like, let them go. Don't you see what's happening? Moses is becoming revered in the eyes of all the people. But God is limiting the suffering of his people. As you see these plagues progress, you see that it's not happening where? In the land of Goshen. Who's in the land of Goshen? The Israelites. 
so God limits his people's suffering. It's not as bad as it could be. You can see in Daniel, I often tell students to think about Daniel in the lion's den. Let them think about the fact that God did not save Daniel from the lion's den. Where was Daniel when he was saved from the lions? He was in the lion's den. That's a trial. He was in the lion's den when he was saved from the lions. God limited his suffering. I would certainly say it was suffering for him to go into the lion's den. Yes, he did it by faith. Okay? We're not described of, of how much he was sweating or how he didn't eat that night or what the stench was in there or the bones that were down there. It was a trial the man went through. But God had limited his suffering. The other thing that helps us know it's not as bad as it could be is when we compare our suffering to others, we find comfort in knowing that my situation could have been worse. Think of Job. Now, sometimes we have what's called a Job complex, like, oh, woe is me, I'm Job, for our daily sufferings. But there are true seasonal sufferings that the Lord is working for his glory. You can think of some of the things that are dark in this world, such as those who are sold into the sex slavery industry. Something that Kira was working on ministering to the children of those people in India. Because almost 100% of any woman who was in that industry was manipulated into it before she was 18 years old. You can think of the sufferings that happened in war. You can read about those stories. And more and more of those stories from uh, the 20th century are coming out from World War II and um, from the sufferings of those who went through communism where everything was hush-hush. But we listen to what Romans 8 says about our suffering also being momentary. Listen to Romans 8.18. It says, I consider that my sufferings, our sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is why three chapters later, Paul says to renew your mind in Christ. How often do you need to be reminded that your suffering is temporary? Because it seems like an eternity. But listen to what Revelation 21 says. Verse 4, about our suffering being temporary. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, what we read about in Genesis 3. For the former things have passed away. Oh, that we would have those kinds of perspectives of, of eternity more consistently. Let me here add, though, that I personally am not somebody who's had a high level of suffering in my life. I know this partly because it's true in and of itself. It's a fact, right? I just, there's not much suffering that I have gone through. But I do acknowledge there is some real suffering that, that every human being, myself included, has gone through. But I also know that because I've compared myself to who? To others. And to see their stories of suffering. And I have concluded... God is good because he has limited my suffering and it's not as bad as it could be. That's, a posi- that's, that, that's something you can only say that by faith in God and by relying and recalling his mercies throughout your life. 
And it is a fact that our suffering is limited and it's not as bad as it could be. Again, we're coming to the acknowledging part, okay? Once you recognize this and realize it, I wanted to read more and more stories of others' pain and sufferings to be so much more grateful for what I have been given. And so I've been reading stories of different people. Recently I read two uh, sort of biographies of, of alcoholics who for 20 years... Their life was just pain and suffering. In fact, alcohol itself for them was just a numbing agent for their pain. And the hardest part about reading those stories is these people caused their own grief. When you have an addiction, it's something that you do with your own hands, with your own feet, with your own eyes, with your own heart. You're somebody who's desiring those things. It's your own destruction. One of the things about an addiction is that you're willing to go through with it even though beforehand you know that it will harm those you love. And that is just, they're sad stories. But I think my, my first exposure to real suffering for Christ, not just suffering in this world, but suffering for Christ, comes in reading missionary biographies. You can't read a missionary biography without the stories uh, uh, that they have gone through for the sake of Christ. You think about Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott ministering to the UCA in South America. The church I grew up in, uh, Bruce and Sally Van Persum, ministered in Thailand in the 90s. And there was no education for their children in English. So as I remember, their children in elementary age, um, every month being prayed for in their prayer, prayer uh, bulletin, um, because their children were, were sent to boarding school like 12 hours north on some tra train in Chiang Mai or Chiang Rai, somewhere up in the northern part of Thailand. These, these missionaries who just sacrifice so much for the name of Christ while their parents are carrying on the mission of the gospel. We may say that maybe it would be wiser to come up with some other option, but that was what they did for the, for the sake of Christ. I'd like to share with you a story of one particular missionary from about 150 years ago, 200 years ago, a named Adoniram Judson. He is the first American missionary sent from America. So therefore, after 1776, it's about 1812, he ended up being a missionary in Burma. This is somebody who, who didn't, wasn't a Christian at a young age, but he had to consider the claims of Christ. He had friends that he would talk to about that, and one day on one of his journeys, he was staying in a hotel, and the only room available was next to a dying man. And they said, look, you got this room, but it's, it's real close to somebody who's dying. Thin walls, right? And he heard that man just cursing the Lord all night long and bemoaning and going through death. Must have been a young man, not somebody dying peacefully in their sleep as in their old age. And so in the morning, he asked, he asked the... Uh, person at the desk, uh, what happened? Oh, he died. Oh, just curious, what was that man's name? The man's name was Jacob Eames, who was one of his friends whom he had philosophical discussions with, and it caused him to consider the claims of Christ more seriously. As he did become a Christian, he had two opportunities, seemingly, before him in Boston. One was to be a professor at Brown University, his alma mater, where he went to school. Sounds like a pretty cushioned job. Or he could have been an associate pastor at one of the most successful churches in Boston. What are your choices? Instead, he follows the Lord's will, 
signs up to be a missionary and is sent off to India. Where William Carey is, uh, the great missionary from, from Britain, he ends up in Burma. Uh, Adam Judson ends up in Burma for various reasons. But on his five-month journey over uh, to India, the man uh, changes his views on the sacraments. Today we're doing the Lord's Supper. We're not doing a baptism today. But that man's view of baptism, the initiatory rite into the Christian life, at that time was infant baptism. And he knew he was going to meet William Carey, who was a Baptist, and he's like, I better be prepared for a conversation. So he studies the scriptures for a couple months, and he changes his mind. And he says, it's believer's baptism. Now, we don't make a big deal about that here. Okay, We do take a stand, however, that it is believer's baptism by immersion. Um, but William Carey, I'm sorry, Adonijah Judson realized that the people who sent him out sent him out to, to baptize babies. So he gets there, he gets baptized by William Carey, and his first struggle starts. He has to, in integrity, resign from his mission board because he no longer believes what they believe. And now what's he without? Support. It's okay to be poor. All in favor, say aye. <laughs> it's okay to be poor. Nothing like India, though, right? Well, he gets accused of being a British spy. So he has to go to jail. He's there for about two years, and you know he wants to proclaim the gospel. He's somebody who's translating the Bible into Burmese, still the translation, translation they use to this day. His wife smuggles the Bible in in his pillow. But when he's, when he's in jail for those two years, um, they wanted to make sure they didn't escape. Uh, so what they would do is, is they would hang him upside down every night. Now, being hung upside down isn't completely vertical. They knew you would die eventually. So probably his shoulders were laying on the ground, and his ankles were up in the, up in the, the clasps of iron. I don't even think that's the most difficult part. The difficult part is all the bruises and the blood and whatever's going on up there. The mosquitoes were having a heyday every night. I mean, I got bit probably 50 times this week. One time I counted 11, right? But, but what could I do? Like, I could mend it. I could get out of it. But every night doing that for the sake of Christ. He gets out after two years, and then his wife dies. His first wife dies. He stayed there for about 30 years uh, altogether, and he persevered. But after this, he had just had enough. He went to the jungle, extremely depressed, by himself, sat in a hut. He even dug a grave. Sounds a little bit like Jonah, right? But he recognized the truth of the gospel. He never left the basics. And he did walk out, and he did minister after 23 years, he had translated the Bible into Burmese. The translation they still use to this day. He maybe had 25 converts, of whom half of them they never heard from again. Today, there's supposedly about 6,000 believers in Myanmar, Burma. And if you look at the news, that is one dreadful place with political turmoil. But there is hope as there are believers there. He said, I will not leave Burma until the cross is planted here forever. And I know that we long and are willing to sacrifice our own lives and to sacrifice comfort, to give up a vacation, our funds, whatever it may be, for our sufferings for Christ. And so we join them in that. But knowing that our sufferings are never as bad as they could be 
But there is real pain and suffering, and we need to acknowledge that in Christ. Well, where do pain and suffering come from? Let's look at pain and suffering specifically and see why we have pain and suffering. We saw that Adam and Eve were in the middle of being scolded and that um, Satan was also scolded. The word there is cursed. But I do want you to see a difference here and that Satan himself is cursed, but for man it says that the ground is cursed before, because of you. And while there is a curse upon man, the other scriptures make it clear, it is different than a curse that's given to the fallen angels. There is no hope for Satan and his demons. There is no redemption. But for man, the curse can be temporary. If you are found to be in Christ, if you are found that Christ is the one who has taken the curse for you. If you're somebody who has, in the midst of pain and suffering, called out to God instead of at God in your trials. The Israelites were somebody that were God's people when they were being called out of Egypt after their 400 years of slavery and their, their trials and sufferings. But that generation just constantly, that older generation, constantly called out at God in their pain and suffering. He was in the midst of saving them instead of calling out to God for help. Indeed, Paul says, do everything without complaining and arguing. So, in verse 14, we see that he, Satan himself is cursed. We see the first, really the second instance of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, knowing that our hope is especially found in the fact that Christ crushes the head of the serpent and of sin. Even though there is a real, seemingly mortal wound on Christ, but he comes back from the grave. And then the curse is given specifically to women and to men. There are gender-specific aspects of the curse, though there is also some general overlap. Specifically, why do we have pain and suffering? Because there's a curse. What is the curse for a woman? There is pain in childbearing. Not only is there nine months of, uh, of bearing a child, carrying a child, there's the delivery, of course. There's also raising children that involves pain. And I think we see a hint of this, or it's obvious rather, in Genesis 4. What, what happens soon after they leave the garden? Their kids kill each other. Cain kills Abel, and in one day, she loses both her kids as, as Cain is banished. Now, as if this isn't bad enough, okay, particular for a mother, chapter 4, verse 1 says that when she had Cain, she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There's a hint, there's an implication here that she was thinking this was the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Because they don't have the intimacy with the Lord that they had in the garden. They still had intimacy. They still had a relationship with him. But I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's a 
good possibility, likelihood that she had thought, maybe this is the one who's going to bring us back to the garden. <coughs> so there is great pain, not only in childbearing, but certainly also in childrearing. The second part does deal with, with men as well, but specifically here it says, your desire shall be for or against your husband. The bottom line is, is that there will be marital strife for everybody. A solution to it, of course, is self-sacrifice in Christ for both husband and wife. That there are biblical roles of men being called to lead and women being called to follow. You can look more in Ephesians 5 and 6 for that. To Adam, to man, he says in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. And you will experience also pain in your work, whether it's 730 to 3, whether it's 7 to 5, whether you're somebody who's salaried and you bear that burden 24-7 and have to sleep with your phone because you have responsibilities. We're reminded of, of the pain um, and the weeds that we have to pull in that ivy hill. There's just mounds of them. But ultimately, there's pain and death. Something that is a real fear. And that it's a real reality. And why we all hope to just die in our sleep, right? But then we come to pain management. We come to pain management. This is from my kitchen cupboard. A bottle of Advil, okay? It's got about 10% of the pills left. I think we bought this maybe around January or so, okay? There's three adults people that live, three adult-sized people that live in my house. And so we're just normal people who have regular aches and pains, okay? It speaks to the reality of pain and suffering, doesn't it? Now, in fact, why don't you raise your hand if you have Advil or Tylenol or something like that in a mobile form with you today or in your car. Would you raise your hand if you have Advil or something like that around you? Okay. Like, almost every family, like, you got something. We have mobile pain management, don't we? For, um, for dealing with the weeds in our lives, uh, we have gloves, right? Or even better, we got power equipment, right? <laughs> Let's get rid of it the easy way. If you're looking for um, some more detailed answers to, to chronic pain, there's a, a website I want to encourage you to go to from a biblical counselor. His name is uh, Jim Halla. He has a, a book called Pain. The Plight of Fallen Man. You can go to his website. His name is Jim Halla, H-A-L-L-A. And if you're looking for some more detailed answers to how to deal with chronic pain, this is a man who is an MD and is a, a great Christian counselor who gives answers to those things. That's Jim Halla. He explains a lot of the why in taking it to Christ. So what about this parenthetical remark? that our pain and suffering need to be acknowledged in Christ. Recall our young student who acknowledged it and remembered that we really certainly deserve worse. Job's friends were the best friends the first week they were with him because they were just there. 
There's a lot to be said for acknowledging somebody's pain and suffering. They were able to talk to him because they had spent a week with him. There's a lot to be said for the bodily presence of ministering to somebody when they're going through pain and suffering. Though there does come a point where you do need to speak truth in Christ to them. Stan Cervatovich reminded us of this when he spoke about two years ago, the missionary from Montenegro, saying that a missionary's primary job is to proclaim the gospel, as he explained to us from Romans 10, using words. So there is a place for presence, but ultimately there's also a place so that we can speak truth into people's lives. Truths such as only guarantee you have in life and in death is Christ. But you've got to listen and acknowledge their pain and suffering before you can say that. What a statement of belief by faith that we know that the only guarantee we have in life and in death is Christ. Knowing that ultimately the worst that can happen to us is that to die is gain and I am with Christ. So we acknowledge and deal with our pain and suffering in Christ. I'd like to read to you a paragraph that is the most important paragraph to me outside of the Bible. It was written about 450 years ago. Um, It's called the Heidelberg Catechism, Question and Answer 1. For about 400 years, this was a basic of the faith that the church never left. This was Sunday School Material 101 for the church for about 400 years. We've gotten away from it for various reasons. For me, this has been given to me when I was about 10 years old. Uh, it's in a uh, Psalter hymnal where there's, it's a personal copy of, of hymns, and in the back are some beliefs that we believe. It's given to me by my grandfather, who did go through a good bit of pain and suffering in life. He's somebody who lived through World War II. He was, in fact, in a concentration camp. Um, he was not Jewish, nor was he in Europe. He was in Dutch Indonesia. He was in the Japanese labor camp, is what it was specifically called. He was uh, only a child. He's about 10, so he didn't experience much of the suffering, so I know. But he was there. And this question and answer has been popular and comfortable to so many people throughout the history of the church, and I'd like to read it to you today. You've heard it before, likely. It says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It's about three sentences. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Second, He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Third thing, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is probably just an amalgamation of about 20 different scripture verses. You can hear it all in there. And the bottom of this are the 20 different scripture references that point to the truths that are found in here. There's a few copies of it down here if you're interested in grabbing one. Basically, it's summarizing that our only guarantee in life and in death is Christ, and that is where we get our comfort. And that's a lifelong journey. We don't arrive there in one day. We're continually comforted in our daily pains and sufferings, as well as the seasonal ones that we go through. But know also that Christ had the greatest pain. We can look at missionary biographies, we can look at other people, but ultimately Christ is the one who had the greatest pain. God on a cross. He was betrayed and shamed. 
He had physical pain and suffering, but most especially the spiritual suffering of being forsaken by the Father. As we looked at over Easter in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But know that he has passed that victory on to us. 1 Corinthians 15 familiarly says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And if Christ has suffered, then we can suffer. Christ gave meaning and value, not only to this world when he created it, but he gives meaning and value to suffering. Because Christ suffered, then so am I, somebody, in my suffering, it's got value, and I can trust God's plans for it. Jesus himself said that if they persecuted me, they will certainly persecute you. And so we look to Christ in all things. I want you to listen, or you can follow, turn to Hebrews 12 if you want, or you can just listen. We're going to read Hebrews 12, 3 through 7. Hebrews 12, 3 through 7 says, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And have you forgotten the encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. There are trials, there are testings, there are sufferings in this world. We also know that Christ did that for the joy that was set before him. I mean, how do you go to a trial for the joy that is set before you? Only by the strength of God. We read in uh, 1 Peter 4, for our scripture reading today, telling us not to be surprised at the fiery trial that's come to test you. That word fiery I've written down in my Bible is painful. We're not surprised because our framework includes a view of Genesis 3. He then also talks about rejoicing in the midst of your sufferings. I need you to remind me to rejoice in my sufferings of that great salvation that I have been given. But suffering not for my own sins and consequences, but ultimately here suffering as a Christian. There's a quote here that says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? What does that mean that a righteous person is hard to be saved? It means that we have to go through trials and judgments, even as Christians. What on earth is going to happen to those who don't know Christ? Going through their trials, their sufferings, without the hope of eternity. But again, ultimately we look to Christ and His sufferings. Because 1 Peter 4.1 says that Christ suffered in his flesh, so you should arm yourselves with the same attitude, the same way of thinking of suffering. It says, whoever has suffered in the flesh is done with sin. What does that mean? Ultimately, it means that if you identify with Christ, your sins are gone. Ultimately, it means that God has a plan 
for your growth in Christ. And your, His plan is for you to call out to Him in the midst of your sufferings. His sanctification for our life involves an obstacle course, if you will, right? But it's on that narrow path. And we have the light of the Word to go before us. We have the attitude of Paul that said, as it has been granted to you, not only on behalf of him to believe in him, but also to suffer, as the apostles were joyous in their suffering. And so, don't be scared to suffer. It's a good antidote to fear. I want us to kind of conclude by thinking about Genesis 50-15, where Joseph says, in response to his brothers, who are now scared. Why? Because their father Jacob has died, and they're like, Joseph's going to get us now. It's the time of vengeance. Joseph says, no, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now in that, I want you to hear that, that Joseph, I don't think, is being grateful or thankful for the sufferings that he's gone through in life. He's not grateful that evil has happened to him. But he can be grateful from the good that comes from the evil. Sometimes you hear people say, I'm so grateful for the cancer the Lord gave me. It caused me to seek after him and I'm in such a better spot. But I think we know what they mean by that is I'm grateful for the good that came from it. But we can't be grateful for evil. But we can see that God brings good out of evil. And that we can be thankful in a situation, Jerry Bridges says, without being grateful for the situation. I think that's fair and that's honest when you talk to people. That's part of acknowledging it in Christ, but ultimately pointing to Christ. And so pain and suffering needs to be acknowledged in Christ, but it's also never as bad as it could be. As we move to the Lord's Supper, let's consider that great salvation that we have been given. As we take the Lord's Supper today, uh, we are going to um, distribute the plates. Uh, you don't have to um, take from this if you don't want to. We do have the individual packs in the back. If you want that, feel free to get up and get that. That is fine. We're trying by faith to move a little bit to normalcy. We've had Sunday school today. We had our first family fellowship last week, and we're just trusting the Lord. Alan had a mask and gloves on when he was making the Lord's Supper today. Thank you, Alan. But again, if you want to just take the individual ones, you're, you're welcome to do that. Um, let me get uh, four men to come up and help me serve the Lord's Supper today. Any four men, come on up and join me. As we prepare our hearts, let me move this back. I can just get three, two more men, one more guy. Guys, two there and two there. Thank you, guys. As we take this, again, this is something that is for those who are believers. We have made our profession in Christ. And in that upper room, Christ initiated the Lord's Supper. But it's not just a New Testament thing. Uh, it is founded in the Old Testament uh, in the Passover. And in the upper room, Jesus transforms the Passover into the Lord's Supper, into something that's not just done 
every single year, but is done frequently by the church. Um, as often as we gather, remembering that the bread symbolizes his body that truly lived on earth for three, 33 and a half years, who truly died on the cross so that your flesh could be saved. And who truly bled and died. The blood doesn't just represent his blood, per se, but it represents his lifeblood being taken from him. As Jesus transformed the Passover in the upper room to the Lord's Supper, he is now that sacrificial lamb. And he is the one that limits our suffering, not just here on earth, but ultimately in heaven. He has taken away all suffering and all pain. So this is what we remember today as we take the Lord's Supper.